Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 this morning as we continue in our summer teaching series that we've entitled The Parables of Jesus. And this morning we're going to be looking at the parable of the unforgiving servant. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 beginning with verse 21 and we're going to go all the way through to verse 35. If you're there, say amen. And if not, if you don't have your Bible, we'll have it up here on the screen. Matthew 18, beginning with verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who, who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of God. And as we went through that passage this morning, you may have noticed that today's parable is addressing the topic of forgiveness. And to be forgiven simply means to have a debt that's owed canceled. And forgiveness is something that we like to talk about a lot around here. We, we try to mention it weekly. It is a primary component of the gospel, and it is one of the sweetest words in the English language. We all love forgiveness, don't we, when it's being extended towards us, when, when our debt's being canceled. Have you ever been in a drive through you get to the front, and someone says, you don't have to pay. Someone behind you has already paid for it. 
That's never happened to me either, but I've heard stories like that. Or how about when you've sinned against somebody and you've hurt them and it's, you really grieved because it's broken relationship and you want to have that uh, relationship restored. And they graciously open their arms and say, yes, I forgive you. Forgiveness is sweet. And in their book, Forgive and Love Again, John Nieder and Thomas Thompson point out that in the Bible, there are at least 75 different word pictures that are meant to help us to grasp what the beauty of forgiveness looks like. I'm not going to go through all 75 of them, but I'm going to give six of them this morning. To forgive is to turn the key, open the cell door, and let the prisoner go free. To forgive is to write in large letters across a debt, nothing owed. To forgive is to pound the gavel in a courtroom and declare the guilty person not guilty. To forgive is to shoot an arrow so high and so far that it can never be retrieved. To forgive is to take out the garbage and dispose of it, leaving the house fresh and clean. To forgive is to loose the anchor and set the ship free to sail. It is awesome when we hear the gavel pound in the courtroom and we're not declared guilty, isn't it? But have you ever noticed that Oftentimes, when it comes our, our turn to pound the gavel and to extend forgiveness, that oftentimes forgiveness doesn't taste as sweet. Uh, when we're the offended party and when we're asked to forgive, sometimes it can be difficult to write in large letters across their debt, nothing owed. And you can almost hear it in Peter's voice this morning when he's like, Lord, how many times... Do I have to forgive my brother? Just, just and I think he's saying, you know, how forgiving, how, how merciful do, do I have to be? And if we want to answer that, understand why he's asking that question, again, we need to understand context. We're in chapter 18, Matthew 18, which is often known as the, the chapter on church discipline. And in, and in this chapter, Jesus has been addressing forgiveness and reconciliation in verse 15. I, I think a better name for this chapter, instead of calling it the, the chapter of church discipline, would be to call it the chapter of reconciliation and unity. Because biblical forgiveness is meant not just to forgive the person who sinned, but it's meant to reconcile and bring unity to the body of Christ. It's meant, forgiveness is meant to glorify, ultimately to glorify God. But either way, whatever you want to call the chapter, let's look at verse 15 and what Jesus says here. It's very familiar to many of us. We've preached on this several times in our church, but it says, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, in other words, if he repents, if he agrees with you, you have gained your brother. Now, notice that biblical forgiveness involves several steps. Number one, the first one is we are to go to the person that has offended us, that has sinned against us in private. Secondly, we are to tell them their fault. Thirdly, we are to wait to see how they respond. And fourthly, we are to be reconciled or not reconciled 
based upon their response. If they agree and they repent of their sin, then we're reconciled. You forgive them. If not, uh, we don't have time to go on that, into this this morning, but there are steps that we are to take if they will not repent. And I think what's happening here is Peter is pointing back to what Jesus has said, and he wants to know the limit. He wants to know when can he say, you know, when someone sins against you, when can you say enough? I have had it up to here. We're, we're done. You have reached your credit limit. Your card is declined. We are finished. There is no more forgiveness for you. When can you finally tell someone, I will not forgive you if, you're, if they're truly repenting? Well, there were rabbis back in the day, and many of them would teach that three times was the limit. One rabbi has stated, if a man commits an offense once, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a second time, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, they forgive him. The fourth time, they do not forgive. Now, Peter may have thought in his mind when he was asking Jesus, hey, is it seven times? He may have been thinking, man, I'm going the extra mile here. I'm doubling what the rabbis have taught, and I'm, I'm actually adding one on top of it. Uh, but instead of being impressed, Jesus replies in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some of your translations may, have, may read 70 times seven. Regardless of which one it is, we need to understand that Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. He is not saying that, you know, once you reach 77 times on the 78th time or on the 491st time, then you can just lower the boom on that individual. We need to understand that in Christ's economy, forgiveness has no credit limits. And to illustrate his point, that's, that's why Jesus is telling this parable this morning, is to answer Peter's question. And this is a, an example of, of an extreme and limitless forgiveness of how a king who represents our Father in heaven offers to forgive a servant who represents us 10,000 talents. And a talent was, it was the highest monetary unit of, of the day. And to give us some perspective of, of the amount owed, it's helpful to understand that the annual revenue for Herod, the king back in, in Jesus' time, was only 900 talents. That's only 9% of what this servant owed. Um, in our day, in the U.S., last year's annual revenue was around $4 trillion dollars. So in our currency, if you keep uh, the, the, the uh, statistics the same, in our economy, th this man would have owed $44.5 trillion. Now, it's also interesting to know that our um, gross national deficit is only $30 trillion. This man owed $44.5 trillion. He had a better chance of, of jumping up and touching the moon than he did for paying off this debt. And I think that's the point that Jesus is making, that there is no hope for this man. He and his wife and his children, everything that he holds dear is about to be auctioned off in order to begin paying for a debt that he cannot pay. The point that Jesus is making here is that this man cannot pay off his debt. He cannot save himself. And have you guys noticed 
a pattern that keeps repeating itself throughout the past few parables that we've been looking at. The Good Samaritan, Jesus wants, what does he want the lawyer to see? He wants that self-righteous lawyer to see that he is the man laying in the pathway, beaten, about to die. He wants him to see that he is unable to help himself. He needs someone to come by and save him. Last week when we looked at the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus wants the self-righteous to realize something, that no, they are not better than the, the tax collector. He wants those who are, feel good about themselves to realize you are just as bad as the worst person that you can think of. He wants us to be like the tax collector who realized that he needed mercy, that he could not save himself. And then today, Jesus is talking to Peter. What does Jesus want Peter to understand? He wants Peter to remember or understand how indebted he is to God with his sin, that he is like the indebted servant, that he cannot save himself. That's what we need to understand is that we cannot save ourselves. So what happens when this servant realizes he cannot save himself? Verse 26 says, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, imploring the king, have patience with me. Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. I think the servant doesn't quite understand how much he owes the king, does he? Because this man does not need more time. He does not need a second chance. Actually, if, if he's given more time and a second chance, he's probably going to make his debt even more, not less. He doesn't need more time, and he, he doesn't need more chances. He needs mercy. He needs forgiveness. Because the debt that he owes, he would never be able to repay, not even in a million lifetimes. That's the point. That's how, how deep our sin is. Amen. He wants, to, he wants us to see how deep our sin is, but how much deeper God's compassion is for us. Let's look at verse 27. And out of pity for him. Now, notice here that word pity is the exact same word that was used back with the Good Samaritan when it says that the man had compassion on the man laying in, that the Good Samaritan had compassion on the man who had been beaten. So you could read, and out of compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Just like the good Samaritan, the king saw the condition of the servant, and it caused him to feel compassion towards him. So what does the king do? He does for the servant what the servant cannot do for himself, and he pays his debt off. He forgives him of his debt. And it's important to understand that he doesn't just reduce the debt. He doesn't bring it down to here and say, all right, now you work the re and, and pay the rest of this off. That's not how this forgiveness operates. No, the entire debt is canceled. It is paid in full. The king takes the, the key, he turns it, he opens the door, and he sets the captive free. It's totally, totally freedom for this man. Nothing owed. As I was studying this passage, it, it kind of hit me. When I went over the numbers of the trillions of dollars for us and for, the, for that king back then, it hit me for the first time. You know what? This man got uh, forgiven of his debt, but it cost this king a lot not to get that kind of money. 
That, it cost this king a lot. It's important to understand that this was not some little debt that was paid off. And with that in mind, how should the, this servant have responded to the forgiveness that he, was, that he received? I want you to think about that. If this was you, how should you respond to someone who has forgiven a debt of that magnitude? How should he have treated his fellow servants? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that he should have been the most forgiving man on the planet if he understood what he had been forgiven of. And that's, I think that that's what our problem is often, isn't it, church? We often forget what we have been forgiven of. We, for, we, we have forgotten the magnitude of what we've forgiven. When, when, when I find it difficult to forgive my brother or my sister of something, it's usually because I have forgotten how much I've been forgiven of. And as we see in, in this parable, this man doesn't re- realize, or at least he doesn't respond to the compassion that this king has given to him. Instead, he encounters one of his fellow servants who owes him 100 denarii, and a 100 denarii would have been about 100 days um, worth of, uh, what's that called, uh, wages, 100, de- 100 days worth of wages. So think about how much, if you're still working, think about how much 100 days to you in the year of your paycheck would be. For most of us, that's not chump change. He owes this man, this man owes this man a sizable debt uh, compared for this man. And so what does he do? He begins choking him, demanding repayment. And so the debtor falls on his knees, and this is what's so interesting to me, is that he begs exactly like his uh, fellow servant had begged the king. He says, have patience with me, and I will repay you. And obviously, this man should have been eager to forgive this debt. But instead, he throws this man into prison. And, and when the king hears about it, he becomes angry. When the, uh, this man's uh, fellow servants come and tell the king, and he hears that he did not forgive him, he becomes angry. And in verse 32, we read that the king says, You wicked servant. You wicked servant. Now, notice what's happening here. The mercy that was given to this servant did not penetrate his heart. He did not take it to heart. Therefore, his heart was never changed. He didn't receive it properly. So he says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus gives this final teaching to Peter. He says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So with Peter, the question, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? The answer that Jesus basically gives, if I were to summarize it together, is he says this. Forgive your brother, forgive your brother as much and as often as God has forgiven you. There should be a slide for that. It says, forgive your brothers as much and as often 
as God has forgiven you. Don't forgive more. Don't forgive less. And here's the good news. Once you reach that level, once you have forgiven your brother or your sister as much as God and as often as God has forgiven you, then you don't have to forgive them anymore. You know, church, we should be the most willing to extend forgiveness kind of people on the planet, shouldn't we? And we will be if we truly receive the mercy that's been given to us and recognize how we have personally been forgiven. And, you know, with that said, it still is difficult to forgive, isn't it, at times, depending on how deep the cut is. And, again, it's because we forget. The first century church, uh, this is encouraging to me, the first century church had the same problem as we do. And they had to be reminded and encouraged in this. If you look at Ephesians 4, verse 32, it says, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, here it is, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's our motivation. Colossians 3, 12 and 13 says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I like this one on number 13, uh, or at verse 13, bearing with one another. You know what that's saying? There's going to be annoying people in the church that, that are annoying to you. But you also need to realize that you're annoying to other people too. But bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Here it is again. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Again, forgive your brother as much and as often as God has forgiven you. And Jesus adds to that. He says, and it must be what? It's got to be from your heart. It has to be from your heart, not just from your lips. It has to be total forgiveness, just like you've been totally forgiven. Now, that's where it becomes difficult. That's where it becomes um, impossible. I mean, what does that look like? And I want to talk about that for just a minute. What does biblical heart forgiveness actually look like? How do you know, how do you know if you're walking in biblical forgiveness? Well, there was a preacher named Thomas Watson who preached over 300 years ago. And he, kinds of, he gives a test that, that's a, a litmus test that can help you and I discern whether or not we are walking in biblical heart forgiveness. We know that we are walking in this when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. That's pretty thorough, isn't it? Um, I want to go through each one of these point one at a time briefly. Number one, he says, resists thoughts of revenge. I'm going to give a scripture for each one of these, to showing that this is a biblically-based way of knowing whether or not we are walking in biblical heart forgiveness. 
Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Number two, forgiveness from the heart doesn't seek to do them mischief. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, See that no one repays another with evil for evil. Number three, wishes well to them. Luke 6.28, Jesus says, Bless those who curse you. Number four, grieves at their calamities. Proverbs 24, 17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Number, number five, praise for them. Matthew 5, 44, Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Number six, seeks reconciliation with them. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And then number seven is always willing to come to their relief. Exodus 23, 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering, wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. It's important to understand what forgiveness looks like. But, you know, it's, it's also important to understand what forgiveness is not. And I want to give, um, actually, John Piper points out three things that forgiveness is not that I want to share this morning. Number one, forgiveness is not the absence of anger at sin. It doesn't mean that you're not angry at sin. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to, to feel good about something bad that's happened to us or to someone else. It doesn't mean that we pretend like what happened to us never happened. It doesn't mean that we forgive, forget, and move on like, like it's not a big deal. Sin is a big deal. God hates sin, and so we should also. And Piper tells a story about a, a lady who, for 15 years, when it tanked, came time to take communion. She would not take it because her husband had repeated, repeatedly beat her and sexually abused their children. And she said that every time she came to the communion table, she would remember what her husband had done and she would feel so angry at what it had cost her children that she just did not feel worthy to take communion. And so finally, her pastor began to counsel her on this, and he said this. He said, you are not expected to feel good about what happened. Anger against sin and its horrible consequences is fitting up to a point. But you don't need to hold on to that in a vindictive way that desires harm for your husband. You can hand it over to him who judges justly again and again and pray for the transformation of your husband. Forgiveness is not feeling good about horrible things. And this pastor went on to encourage her to forgive her husband in this way, if she hadn't already, and to take communion. And as she took communion, she was to hand over her anger that she had towards this man to God and to pray 
for her husband. So the first thing that forgiveness is not, it is not the absence of anger against sin or at sin. Secondly, it's not the absence of serious consequences for sin. Sin is destructive. It often carries with it serious consequences, even though an individual may truly confess it, they may truly repent, they may truly be forgiven. Sometimes in this life, there are still major consequences that we have to deal with because of our sin. Thomas Watson, again, he writes this concerning the serious consequences of sin. He says, though a child of God, after pardon, may incur his fatherly displeasure, yet his judicial wrath is removed. Though he may lay on the rod, that is, the Lord may discipline with the rod, yet he has taken away the curse. Correction may befall the saints, but not destruction. And so sometimes our sin, even though we've been forgiven, it can carry with it serious consequences. For example, if you remember Moses in the desert, what did he do? He struck the rock after God said, speak to the rock. He struck it. Now, was he forgiven of that sin? Yes, he was. But what was his uh, punishment or what was the consequence? God did not allow him to enter into the promised land. Then we have King David who committed adultery with Bathsheba and he murdered her husband Uriah. Was David forgiven of this sin? Absolutely. Read Psalm 51. This is David's confession to the Lord of his of, of him owning his sin. He says, against you, you only have I sinned. I'm not blaming anyone for what I've done, but myself. And he lays it at the Lord's feet and, and confesses it, owns it totally. But there were still consequences for David. The, life, the, the child lost its life, and God said, you know what? You're never, the, the sword is never going to depart from your house. His son, one of his favored sons, rose up against him in the end. And so when there, are, there has been deep emotional, physical, or uh, sexual abuse, or if a person remains to be a dangerous person to be around, forgiveness does not mean that you have to allow this person back into, their, into your life. If, if you're in a situation like this, I would strongly encourage you to get counsel. Help, help others walk you through this uh, scenario but it may mean that the perpetrator goes to prison. But in such cases, I want to say that those who are truly repentant of their sin, they will not resist the consequences of their sin. They won't say, this is unfair, or why is this happening to me? I, I knew a man one time that had gone to prison because as a youth pastor, he had dealt inappropriately with a young lady. And so he was put, taken to prison, found guilty. He pled guilty. He went to prison for it. When he came out, he was, uh, became a member of the church that I was at. And he was still on the offenders list, and he was not allowed, ever allowed to be in the children's ministry area or work with teenagers. And when I, when I talked to him, I believe that this man was truly repentant and that he had received the forgiveness of God. And one of the reasons I believe that is because he never defended himself. He never blamed anybody for what he had done. He never said, this is unfair, this is unjust. He understood what he had done had consequences that followed it. 
And he was just, he was grateful to be restored back in the body of Christ. So forgiveness is not the absence of the anger at sin. It's not the absence of serious consequences for sin. And it doesn't look the same for an unrepentant person. Now, a question that that is often asked when we're talking about forgiveness is, you know, what if I want to forgive somebody, but they don't want to be forgiven? What if uh, they don't want to repent? What if they say what I did wasn't wrong? Or what if they don't, they're not um, alive anymore? You know, how, how do you deal with a situation like that? Uh, is it even possible to forgive somebody if they don't think they've done anything wrong? Well, I'm going to read what John Piper says about this, because I think he says it better than I can. He says, I am not sure that in the Bible the term forgiveness is ever applied to an unrepent, unrepentant person. Jesus said in Luke 17, verses 3 through 4, Be on guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, then forgive him. So there's a sense in which full forgiveness is only possible in response to repentance. I'm going to read that again. There's a sense in which full forgiveness is only possible in a response to repentance. But even when a person does not repent, we are commanded to love our enemy and pray for those who persecute us and do good to those who hate us. The difference is that when a person who wronged us does not repent with contrition and confession and conversion, he or she cuts off the full work of forgiveness. We can still lay down our ill will. We can hand over our anger to God. We can seek to do him or her good, but we cannot carry through with reconciliation or intimacy. So if someone is unrepentant, we can still come to a place where we we don't have to live our, the rest of our lives in anger. We don't have to w- wish ill will towards that person. But there is that component of reconciliation that will not be able to be had until that person comes to repentance. You know, biblical forgiveness really is simple, isn't it? Um, forgive as Christ has forgiven you. It, it's that simple. It's simple, but it's not easy, is it? And uh, actually, if you think about it, if, you, if you've been listening to what I've been talking about, it's actually impossible. All the things that, that we're, we're to do, we cannot do these things. And, and you might be sitting here this morning, and you're like, I know that. I already know that. There's somebody in my mind right now that's in my life that, that I cannot forgive this person. I don't have the power. I don't think it's available to forgive this person. They have wounded me so deeply that I, that I could never forgive them. And if, if that's you, um, I want to just say a couple of things. Number one, you're kind of in a good place because you realize you need a Savior. You, you realize you can't do it on your own. You may not be willing to either, but that, we'll, get, we'll get to that in just a minute. But you realize, 
I cannot forgive this person. I can, to, to even think, I hope that God will do good for this person, you can't, that can't even, doesn't, you can't even think of what that would look like. So what I want to encourage you, if, if that's where you're at this morning, and it may be that you're just having a, um, a spat with your spouse, and right now you're like, there's no way I can forgive this person, right? Here's what I want to encourage you to do, and we say this a lot here at Reach Life Church, is be where you are. Don't pretend like, oh, I forgive that person, but really you're not. Be where you are, but don't stay where you are. Be where you are. God allows us to be where we are. But don't stay where we are, because if that's where you're at, because the pathway of forgiveness only leads to destruction. And Jesus says, if, you don't, if you're not willing to forgive your brothers from your heart, then don't expect God to be willing to forgive you. So here's what I want to tell you to do. If you're in that situation, pour out your heart to God where you are right now. Tell him how you've been wounded. Tell him how you have been abused, how you've been hurt, how angry you are. You might even tell him, you know, God, honestly, I hate that person. Um, I want vengeance on that person. I want that person to suffer. Speak the truth of where your heart really is, but that's where you are, but don't stay there. Take a step forward and acknowledge that, God, you know what? That's where I am, but I know your word And unforgiveness is not the heart of God. Unforgiveness is not what your heart is like. And so when I refuse to forgive others, I am suppressing your glory. During that time, ask him to show you how he has treated you. Now, I'm not, this isn't like um, a 30-second prayer and, and move on. Depending on how deep the wound is, it can take time for, for true healing to take place. But I'm talking about beginning the process here. Lord, help me, Lord, to see how I have offended you. Help me to see also how you have dealt with the way I've offended you. In other words, what I'm saying is, look to the cross. Look to the cross. And I was telling our missional community group this, this week, Look to the cross and see a man hanging there so badly beaten that he no longer resembles the form of a man. He didn't even look human. Look to him and, rem- and, and then say, you know what? I'm the reason that he's up there. Remember what we have done. Remember what you deserve. And then realize what, what God has said to us. If you're willing to confess your sin if you will own what you've done, if you will repent with the desire to change, not just sin so you can keep on sinning with no consequences, but if you're willing to return, then I will cancel your debt totally, and you can go free. We need to let that truth on a regular basis sink in to us. We need to accept his sacrifice, remembering that he is the only one, not only that can sympathize with you, but he can also give you grace. He can give you power to forgive the unforgivable, remembering that he has forgiven you and me. Amen?